Open your Bibles to First uh, Timothy, if you would. We're going to be reading from chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let me read that to us. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. Truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, as uh, this local expression of the body of Christ, I pray that you would have your way. I pray that our thoughts would be tuned to you. I pray that you would uh, help us to set aside the things in our minds that would distract us. Good things, bad things, frustrations, challenges, uh, other things that might distract us from your word. Lord, I pray for uh, your blessing on our time. I pray that your spirit would do his work in our midst. I pray that uh, the gospel would be upheld, and I pray that we would be uh, amazed by it and drawn to it, that we would uh, receive instruction from your word about how great our Savior is. So we pray for your blessing this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been working our way through First uh, Timothy here for a little bit, and... Um, just kind of as a brief reminder of, of what's going on in the book here, there's a um, uh, church in Ephesus that Timothy has been ministering in, and Paul, traveling by, apparently, or traveling through, left Timothy there to straighten some things out that were going on in the church in Ephesus. And so uh, Paul is not there. He's writing to them. Timothy is to take charge of some things. He's to make some changes. And uh, that's because there were certain issues going on in the church that uh, that needed to be addressed. And um, as so often happens, the, the issues that are going on have to do with false teaching of one sort or another. And uh, in, in this situation, it looks like it was actually some of the uh, leaders of the church who were doing the teaching. They were already, they had uh, already assumed positions of teaching and they were teaching things that were leading the people astray, etc. And so Paul writes to Timothy and says, you've got to get a handle on this. You've got to, you've got to solve these problems. You've got to get rid of this situation and deal with it. And so, uh, uh, we're talking about a church situation. We're talking about what's going on there in the Ephesian church. And, uh, so, you know, we, it does, it's not a, an enormous stretch for us to think about, uh, what is going on in church situations. Here we sit in a church building gathered as the local expression of the church here this morning. And so, um, you know, we kind of, maybe can relate to, to certain things and we can imagine kind of what's going on there. And, and so I want to talk a little bit of, about what's going on uh, in this passage that we're going to be talking about in chapter 2. 
Um, it seems like because of the, the weird teachings, the strange fascinations that these people had with myths and genealogies and the stuff that they were teaching from that, that the church had begun to focus on those sort of odd teachings and, and unique and quirky things that, that weren't big issues but had become big issues because they were focused on so much. And so the church was focusing on them. They'd begun to squabble over those sort of things. And, and uh, they had taken their, their view off of the, the bigness of God and what he's doing and what scripture teaches. And they started focusing on this one little corner over here that was part myth and, uh, and part irrelevant. And uh, so they, they were focusing on those things. And so what happens when a church starts to squabble, particularly about unimportant things in their midst? Well, their focus goes from reaching the world around them, right, to what's going on inside the church. And so that's what had happened, apparently, at the church in Ephesus, that their view had gone off of any kind of outward ministry, and they had started looking to one another and trying to deal with this issue to the exclusion of these other uh, issues, uh, mainly evangelism. And so um, they, they got to the point where the Great Commission just had kind of gotten shelved, and uh, the lost world had gotten forgotten. Uh, evangelism is a thing of the past, and we start squabbling over little issues, and defending one's position becomes more important than winning the lost uh, to Christ. And so that's kind of the situation that's going on there with these these uh, men in the church who were teaching, and they, they wanted to be teachers of the law, remember, and they were fascinated with the, the, the genealogies, and they were these Jewish myths, and they were kind of majoring on the minors and those sorts of things, and it was causing major problems in the church. And so um, Paul writes here to Timothy and he says, first of all, I want you to take care of this thing. First of all, take care of this thing. I think it's very telling that you can tell a lot about what we think about a situation by how we pray about it, by what we pray in the midst of a situation. You can kind of get get a sense of what a, what a person thinks about it, whether we pray about it, what we pray about it. And here in our passage, God wants us to be concerned to pray for all people. Pray for all people. He says in verse 1, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people is what he wants us to pray here. Now, I'm a word guy and I like definitions and stuff. And you see the list of four different kinds of prayers that are listed there supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. And and part of me really wants to dive into with the similarities and the differences in, in those uh, those words and maybe what's going on there. But I'll tell you, in the overall uh, meaning of the verse, it, it's not he's not trying to spell out this individual thing and then this individual thing and then this individual thing, etc. He's not trying to spell that out. In the, in the original language, there's no and... Between those words, there's no commas between those words. It's a figure of speech, and the figure of speech is designed to let us read through it quickly, getting a broad overview of what's being said in those four words, not zooming in and focusing on each one individually. And so um, that's why I have in your notes here uh, written down all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people uh, rather than spelling them out individually. You see, the um, there's a lot of overlap in the meaning. There's some difference in the meaning, but I think essentially 
what he's going for here in these talking about these four words is uh, supplications are very specific prayers. He says, I want you to pray very specific prayers for people. And prayer general is a very general word. So he says, I want you to pray all things from very specific things and needs that you know about people to general things. It's a spectrum, a range, and I want you to pray all those things. And then he says, intercessions and thanksgivings. So interceding on people's behalf, right? Bringing people before the Lord, whether they're Christians, whether they're not Christians, whatever. You're bringing people before the Lord. So everything from bringing people to God to thanking God for what he's doing. So there's a range. There's a spectrum. He's saying all kinds of prayer. He's not trying to say, make sure you get these four kinds of prayer done. He's saying all manner of of prayer is what I want you to be praying for people. And so what I take from that is that, that we need to to agree together to be praying for people. All manners of prayers. All manners of prayers. You know, I, I, I pray a lot in given situations, I pray a lot for people's health. Right? They've got major health challenges. That's a good thing, be praying for people's health. In other situations, I'm praying for people's salvation. Right? People dear to me who don't know the Lord, and so I'm praying for them. I need to be praying those prayers. But I also need to be praying other kinds of prayers too. I need to be praying more broadly or maybe more specifically. Right. I need to be bringing people to the Lord and thanking him for what he does when he acts. I need to be remembering people in prayer. The Lord says here that he wants us to pray for all people. Now, you know, this may be just my issue. Maybe you don't have the same issue, but it's easy for me to pray for the people I know and pray for the people I love. It's very easy to remember. Right. It's easy for me to pray for people that are like me. Right. Because all I have to do is kind of change the face a little bit. And, hey, that's he's just like me. Right. So it's easy to pray for him. But some people are so vastly different than me uh, that I it's harder to remember to pray for them. It's harder to remember to bring them to the Lord. And uh, and he's saying here he wants us to pray for for all people, all kinds of people, whether they're very different from me, whether I like them or not, whether I care for them, whether I really know them. Right. Whether whether they're uh, of a completely different uh, lifestyle than me or whatever, I need to be praying for people. Right. And so so this is this is the challenge to me here is that I need to be faithful in bringing people to God in prayer. So we need to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And he says here, especially our secular authorities. Look at verse two. He says, I urge that uh, all these different kinds of prayers be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So he wants us to pray for secular authorities. And the first point is because it benefits us. Okay, It benefits us when we pray for secular authorities. So along with praying for their salvation, which we should be doing, right? We want people to be saved. Is Along with praying for their, their salvation, we need to be praying also for the, deci- the decisions that they make, for the course that they take, right? Did you know that God is sovereign over the decisions they make? That's a good thing, right? That's that's a very good thing. Scripture tells us, Proverbs 21.1, this is a verse you'll want to remember probably. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So that's encouraging. When you read the news and you read about the way things may be going politically or decisions that are contemplated or decisions that have been made or the way things are happening in Washington or in Carson City or whatever, and we can get concerned and we can get down, right? And I think, oh, it's, you know, it, it, maybe it's hopeless. Maybe it's hopeless. And then I read scripture 
which points out the fact that it is actually God who is sovereign over those kind of decisions. And so suddenly, I'm not so powerless. Suddenly, I'm not the victim of decisions that I think are bad. Suddenly, I can go to the one who's sovereign over those decisions and talk to him about them and see what work he's going to do in those situations to change minds, to change decisions, to change hearts. So we need to be praying for our secular authorities. It, it benefits us. Okay, It benefits us when that happens. When they make decisions that benefit our country, it trickles down to us, right? When, when economic decisions are made that make it so that the cost of living changes for us and the price of gas goes down and whatever, right? When we're able to flourish economically, all of a sudden we're benefited, right? Or when decisions are made so that uh, there's not some sort of persecution of Christians or restrictions on uh, religious speech or hate speech kind of things. Um, when those things are changed and eased up and we can, we can speak the gospel freely to, to people around us and, and, and not have to worry about persecution or being thrown in jail or whatever, that benefits us, right? That benefits us. So pray for our secular authorities. It benefits us greatly, but it also benefits the ministry, point two. It benefits the ministry. I like what he says here in the this, this second half. He says, pray for kings and all who are in high positions. First of all, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, the benefit to us, godly and dignified in every way. Godly and dignified in every way. And I, I see a distinction there of, of what's going on. Notice how living or having a peaceful and quiet life is dependent upon society or it's dependent upon the environment around me, whether I have a peaceful and quiet life. I mean, imagine if you live in a, like a war-torn zone, right? If you're dealing with war or the threat of war all the time or, or imminent threats of terrorism, are you going to live a peaceful and quiet life? Well, to a large degree, that's controlled by your environment. You're not going to be able to, right? And so the first list that he gives there, the first pair, a peaceful and quiet life, has to do with the effect of our environment upon us the external world affecting our lives. But the emphasis on the second pair of terms, godly and dignified, is different. Okay, It's not about the, in, the influence of society or the, the external world on us. It has more to do with how we respond to our external world or our actions and our attitudes towards outsiders and particularly the government. I didn't necessarily like reading that part when I read it. And uh, we should, uh, sometimes scripture tells us things that are very painful and we need to make some changes. But my attitude towards the government, my attitude towards the society I live in is very, very important. And that's what he's talking about here. When we pray for our secular leaders, we're doing them the ultimate, ultimate good. Asking the good and holy God of the universe to work in their lives and in their decisions can only be a good thing. He's the one who's sovereign. We don't have to like them. We don't have to approve of them, but praying for God to bring them to godly and wise decisions benefits everyone. And I'll tell you a secret about praying for someone, even someone you don't like, is that after you pray for them for a goodly amount of time, you begin to care for them and you begin to love them. I noticed this when I was a brand new Christian. It was in the 90s. And we had a president, uh, President Clinton, that that um, I actually had my picture taken with back in like 82 my family was the Arkansas Farm Bureau Farm Family of the Year, and he was the governor of Arkansas. And so we had our picture all taken together. And so 
I should I should have brought it and put it up there because it's pretty funny. I was a you know a little guy, probably eight years old, and um, and so you know from Arkansas had this family thing. Really didn't like the Clintons, particularly didn't like Bill Clinton, and and uh, a lot of his views on various things. And then I became a Christian in '92, and I realized you know what, um, I need to. I need to be praying for people, and I need to be praying even for him. He became president shortly after that. I need to be praying for him, and so I really didn't like it. But I bowed my knee, and I prayed, and I brought him to the Lord. And after years of praying, I I don't know when it started, but I started caring for him. I started loving him and praying more earnestly for his salvation, not just distantly, remotely, yeah, save that guy in Washington in in the White House. But more personally, I cared about him. And I wanted him to get saved. I wanted God to work in his life. And it changed me. So we don't have to like them, but we do need to pray for them. And even if you consider uh, the government to uh, uh, maybe maybe you think they're our enemy in some way or, or whatever, but Jesus even covers that in Matthew 5.44, doesn't he? When he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So we're to be in prayer for our government. There's an attitude that is proper uh, from us towards our government in, in responding to society around us, to the culture around us, and even to our government. By praying for our government, we make ourselves better citizens. By having a godly and dignified reputation with unbelievers and with society at large, we help to remove unnecessary offenses or hindrances to the gospel message. Did, okay, did you catch that? There are going to be offenses, and people are going to be offended by the gospel. That's okay. The gospel is offensive. People will be offended by the gospel. But if they are offended because of me or because of us as a church, not because of the gospel, we've got a problem. We are putting unnecessary hindrances before people, right? We are making the gospel odious because we've made ourselves odious, right? And so what what we're being challenged about here is that we not be the one who is offensive. The gospel will be offensive enough. We don't need to be offensive ourselves. And so as a church, as a church body here, we do the best that we can to conduct ourselves in such a way as to retain a good testimony with the state. We keep up whatever documentation is required. Right? We, we fill out the forms that we need to. We do whatever else is required to, uh, to comply with the laws of the land to the best of our abilities. Right? We don't want... The state to think about Parkside and think, oh, those idiots in Fallon, we really need to do something about them because they just won't follow. They're just, they're just, they're wild. They won't, we don't want to be that guy. Okay. We don't want to be that church. We, we want to be as far as we can in right, proper relationship with them. We want to keep hindrances out of the way. We seek to give as little cause as possible to make ourselves the problem. If the gospel becomes the problem with the government, so be it. But we don't want to be the problem before the government. This is our testimony. This is our godly and dignified life that we have. We don't want to be the problem. So let's let the gospel be the problem if it's going to be. Paul's main concern in telling us to pray for our governors is not for our temporal well-being. His main concern is not for our temporal well-being. His main concern is that there be fertile ground for the gospel. That's his main concern here. Our comfort in life, however important it may be, is secondary to the flourishing of the gospel. 
And so that's the real point of why he wants us to pray for our leaders is that they would make godly decisions that will create fertile ground for the spread of the gospel, not create hard ground that's difficult for us and that makes it so people even more don't want to hear the gospel, right? So that's a result of prayer. We know that this is true. We know that uh, that's his, his, uh, his main goal here because of what we read in the next verses here where we are to pray for secular authorities because the gospel is for all. Because the gospel is for all. Verses 3 through 7 read like this. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. He says the gospel is not exclusive. We pray for all people, especially leaders, because they have an inordinate effect, impact on society. We pray for them because the gospel is not exclusive. God makes his offer of salvation indiscriminately to all people. He's not just the God of the Jews. Now, remember who he's talking about. Remember who these uh, these false teachers were that had risen up in the church. They were these teachers who were fascinated by the genealogies. They were fascinated with these Jewish myths, right? And that's where they spent all their time thinking, and that's where they spent all their time teaching and arguing, and, and they were in this whole little world, right? It was, it was all about this one little clique. It was all about uh, the gospel to, to Jews through this little thing or a special group of people. The gospel in their thinking was very exclusive, was not inclusive at all it was for one group of people but instead we read here that the gospel is not exclusive he's not just the god of the jews as some people believed the invitation of salvation in christ is made to all peoples in fact we as as believers have been given the great commission and what does the great commission in matthew 28 say go and make disciples of all nations right not just pick that one nation or stick with the chosen nation Right. Or just work with the Jews. No, it's to all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. It's the mission that he's given his people. It's what he wants. And this is the reason for the instruction in the previous verse when he says, pray for your your governing authorities. Yeah, it benefits your life and it's nice to have a comfortable life and and be safe and have economic prosperity, etc. But that's secondary. The primary is for the spread of the gospel. He wants us to pray for our leaders so that. So that the, the, the fields will be fertile and we can plant the soil or plant the seed of the gospel in that soil and see it grow. That's what he's after is gospel growth. And this is the reason for it. God wants the gospel to be preached to everyone. He desires everyone to be saved, not just one ethnic group or ethnic race. Now, Paul does not intend here to raise questions about God's ultimate will and the individual's salvation. You remember our sermon series that we had back in October, November time frame. We talked more theologically about these kind of issues. Uh, and he's not talking theologically about those issues. He's, he's saying, look, this group of people has said the gospel is for this one little group, maybe Jews or whatever, this one little group of people, and it doesn't apply to other people. He says, instead, the gospel is for everybody. It's, it's, it explodes out from there and it includes everybody, all people groups. The offer is made far and wide. It's not made just to you and to you. The offer is made far and wide. 
The gospel is for all. His point is that salvation is for everyone. No one is excluded because of race or ethnic background. In John 4.42, the Samaritans had come to understand Jesus is the savior of the world. Right? Remember the Samaritans' response to the Samaritan woman at the well? And they, they've come to understand that Jesus is the savior of the world. Well, that that's what's being talked about here. He's, the, he's salvation offered to everyone, to anyone. That is, he's the one through whom salvation is available to the world. It's similar to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, the point there in, in Peter is that the, uh, the Lord, is, why hasn't he returned? Why doesn't he just return? Why doesn't he just return and end all this? It's just terrible, right? Like the, the world's going south. Can't he see that all this stuff? Why didn't he return right now? Well, the reason he hasn't returned right now is because he's patient and he wants the gospel to go. He wants to give people more of a chance to repent. The gospel is out there so that people can turn to him and he wants to, to see if they will and let it sit. Let it sit out there. The point is that God wants the gospel to go out to all people. More than that, he is patient and he allows people time to come to him and usually multiple, multiple chances to hear and to repent. Think about someone close to you who doesn't know the Lord, okay? Someone in your mind, someone close to you who doesn't know the Lord. Now think about how many gospel witnesses there are in that person's life. I don't know, maybe just you, maybe several. Think about how long those witnesses have been there. How long has this person had a gospel witness in their life? And think about how readily available the gospel message is in our culture today. If you want to know, you can find out. If you want to know how to be saved, you can find out. And very often it's from remembering a conversation when a Christian told you. The gospel witness is there and God is being patient. He's being patient. Because he wants you to turn to him. He wants more to believe. The gospel is for all. It's not exclusive. However, he's not, he's not saying that all will ultimately be saved, right? We read this verse, it, this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Does that therefore mean that all people will be saved? Well, that's a, that's a heresy and it's called universalism, that everyone will be saved. There's... Flip over to chapter 4 and verse 10. I think we can kind of bring this to a conclusion by looking in the same book. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Similar kind of language. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So you can see in one sense, yes, he is the Savior of the world. He's The offer of salvation has gone to everyone, it goes to everyone, broadly, broadly. But there's a special way in which he's the savior of those who believe. That's what's being talked about here. The gospel is for everyone, but it's only effectual when a person believes. Or as our verse says, when someone comes to a knowledge 
of the truth. So the gospel is not meant to be exclusive. And one way we know that this is true is that there is only one God for all. One God for all. Look at the first part of verse 5 there. For there is one God. So the foundation for the statement that the gospel is not exclusive, that it's for all, is found in verse 5. There is one God. Now, if you read your Bible, even if you've made a valiant attempt and started from Genesis 1-1 and not gotten very far before you quit, if you got to Deuteronomy chapter 6, you read what's called the Shema. And the Shema is the core of Jewish theology. And you can see it again and again. It it pops up, of course, in New Testament theology. But the Shema reads like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay? So that's the core. That's the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. All right? Deuteronomy 6.4. That's, that's the core of it. Okay? And um, so... Now, the false teachers, if we remember them, what were they fascinated by? They were fascinated by the law, by genealogies, right? They wanted to be teachers of the law, right? So they would have known this verse for certain. They would have known this verse absolutely for certain. And Paul uses it to start building his theology that the offer of salvation is not exclusive like they had thought. And his argument is this. There's only one God. There aren't competing gods. There aren't tribal gods. There aren't regional gods. A God for the mountains, a God for the desert, a God for the ocean, right? There are not competing gods like that. There's not one God for the Hittites, one for the Amalekites, one for the Canaanites, etc. There are not various, numerous different gods and take your pick. Hope your God wins out in the battle against the, you know, the Fernley God or whatever. That's not, that's not the way it is. Though when you, when you read about, um, uh, in Joshua and stuff like that, when you read about interaction with the Canaanites and stuff, that's exactly what their theology was like. Oh, he's the God of the hills. He's too strong for us, right? Well, the issue wasn't that he was the God of the hills. It's that he's the God of the universe, right? And so what he's saying is there is only one creator God, and therefore everyone, each of us, owes allegiance to him. Whether we give him allegiance or not, we owe it to him. There's only one God. Everyone draws their life from him, right? That sounds like Acts chapter 17 when Paul was at the Areopagus and, and, uh, and he was speaking there with the, with the pagans, right? And he was, he was talking about um, trying to share the gospel with them and he was using their own theology to start building an opportunity to share the gospel. And he says this to him, in him we live and move and have our being, right? So as you... We, we all draw our life from him. Everybody, every breathing thing draws its life from creator God. So he's the creator of us all. Therefore, we are all equally under his authority. There's one God for all people. And likewise, there's one mediator for all. One mediator for all. The second half of verse 5 says this. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So he starts getting more specific, right? He He develops... From this Old Testament theology of there being one God, the, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one, right? So he starts with that. That's the cornerstone. And then he starts bringing to mind some other things. Why, why would we need a mediator between us and God? Well, the reason we need a mediator between us and a holy, infinite, and perfect God is because I'm not holy, infinite, or perfect. Right. Far from it. I'm rebellious and sinful. 
and, and I really don't want to be in his presence, right? That, that's what fallen man is like. That, that's the condition we find ourselves in, right? We, I, we want to be our own king. We want to, we want to call our own shots. And so what happens is that makes me at enmity with him. That makes me a rebel against him. And that makes it so that there's this penalty that's got to be paid between me and him. There's this, there's a chasm that I cannot cross. I can't bridge this chasm to get to him, right? Because I'm a fallen and rebellious person, and so that puts me at odds with him. There's only one mediator for all, and this gap can only be filled by one man, one mediator. So, um, as we read in the previous verse, though, what does God desire? Imminent destruction on everybody? No, God desires for all to be saved, right? That's his desire. So you have God over here who's holy and perfect and infinite, but he looks at us who are rebels running from him, fallen people, sinners at enmity with him, and he wants to save us. He wants to save us, and so he sends the one mediator. He sent the one mediator, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and yet also fully man. Paul makes a point here of calling him the man Christ Jesus or the person Christ Jesus. The point isn't his gender. The the point is his humanity. That's what's key. He's like us. He's the man or the person, Christ Jesus. And as a human, like us, he's able to identify completely with us and to represent us before the Father in his role as mediator. And as the divine Son of God, he's able to represent God fully to us as mediator. So he's able to bridge the gap between God and sinful, fallen humanity. There's one mediator for all people, and he paid the one ransom for all people. One ransom for all people. Read in verse 6. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So this one mediator, the only one who could bridge that gap, who could ever possibly mediate between infinite, holy, perfect, all-powerful God and fallen, finite humanity, offered himself as the ransom price for man. So he paid the ransom, the one ransom for all. The one, the only one qualified, offered the only price acceptable to purchase the only salvation from sin. Their sin carries a penalty, and I referred to it earlier. And one each of us owes. Every individual around the world owes the same penalty. The Bible says that penalty is death. It's eternal separation from any blessing of God. That's the penalty that we all owe. And that's a, that's a universal penalty. That's, that's one that everyone around the planet does. It's not exclusive. It's inclusive of all. And Jesus Christ is the only qualified mediator between God and man, stepped in on our behalf to bear God's wrath and to pay that penalty for our sins. That payment, that substitutionary atonement is available to anyone who will put his faith in Christ. It's available to anyone who will trust in Christ and Christ alone to pay the penalty for his sins so that he can be reconciled to God. And so just as there's a common problem that we all have, our sin, and there's a common penalty that we all have, which is death, so there's a common solution, 
that Jesus has provided. There's no other ransom from sin. There's no other way of salvation. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the way God has made, and this is the, this way is made available to anyone who will come to him. So there is one God for all, one mediator for all, one ransom for all. And finally, Paul has been given one ministry for all. One ministry for all. Look at verse 7. He says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, I emphasize Gentiles there because I, I wondered, why would the Apostle Paul ever need to put in there, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying? Especially writing to Timothy, who's a good friend of his. Timothy knows Paul doesn't lie. So why would he include that in there? And the more I read it, the more I could see the point was Gentiles, Gentiles, Gentiles. Think about the situation. Think about the problem that these people were facing. They were wrapped up in Jewish myths and these sort of things over here to the exclusion of the Gentiles, to the exclusion of other people. They wanted to kind of infight and talk about these little things over here and ignore the Gentiles. And Paul comes along lays out this theology, by the way, based on their own scripture that they that they uh, loved and held up. And he says, you, you don't even understand your own scripture. Your own scripture teaches that there is one God. There's one mediator between us and him. There's one ransom that's been paid. And therefore, we are all under that one mediator. We are all under that one God. And so he says, how is it that you can stay focused in your little corner and be stuck right there thinking about these little things when the whole world is to be offered the same ransom, the same salvation. And he says, I, Paul, was called for that purpose. The whole point of my ministry is to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to go outside of this little bubble. That's the whole point of my ministry. And so I think about us and... and. Uh, you know, we don't we don't have identical issues going on with uh, what was happening here in uh, in Ephesus. But. Think about. Think about your own uh, evangelism efforts. Think think about how many times you have um, shared the gospel recently. All right. Think about um, your own uh, focus or your own attitude towards people who are different than you, especially people who who don't know the Lord. And what has been your attitude? Now, I'm speaking from here out there, but it's twice as loud in my own mind, right? There have been opportunities I've had to share the gospel that I have either uh, bungled horribly or I have um, just not taken the opportunity. Because I tend to focus on me. I tend to focus on what I like to focus on. I love I love the word study, right? And I, and I, and I love... I love my books and I love, you know, some things. And it, but it very, for me, it very often can be this. It's my little world, and this is what I focus on, and I don't even really see that out there. I'm focused here. And so the challenge uh, from this passage is, first of all, to be praying for that world, and why should we be praying for that world? The point is because the gospel is for the world. It's not just for me in my little corner. It's for all of us. It's for all of Fallon. It's for the parts of Fallon you don't like. 
is for the people in Fallon you don't like. Or maybe, maybe you just, you just don't even, you know, you don't even, you don't really have an opinion about them, but it's because you, you never even want to cross paths with that person or those kinds of people. You don't even, it's a separate sphere, maybe, of Fallon. The gospel is for them. And so this is the challenge to us. This is the challenge to me. The gospel and salvation is not just for the people in this room or the people in this room and the other churches in Fallon who are preaching the gospel. The gospel is for everyone. It's for everyone. And so the challenge to me and the challenge to you is let's pray for people, including our government. We don't just have to pray that they would make the decision we'd like them to make. Nothing wrong with praying that. But the purpose of our prayer is that their decisions would affect our land in such a way that it becomes a fertile field for the gospel. For the gospel. That's the point. That's the point. So let's pray for all people. Pray for our secular leaders, for the good of the nation. For the cause of the gospel. Gospel is not exclusive. Let's be bold and pray for God to work in our nation in ways that clear the way for the gospel to be shared and believed by people. Let's seek for that kind of blessing for our nation. Together, let's take the unique and glorious message of the one true God sending his only son as mediator and as the unique offering or ransom for our sin. Let's take that message to our neighbors and our co-workers and our family. Think about how amazing and powerful the gospel message is. It's incredible. Think about it and then wonder about it and let it capture your mind. And go and tell people about it. Let's pray. Lord, this is challenging to me because. Because I tend to uh, sit. On the gospel. And examine the gospel, which I should. And I wonder at it, which I should. But then so often I don't take that wonder and present it to other people. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me and I pray that you would forgive us as a church for how often we like to be uh, here together talking about um, our world issues, even talking about the gospel, but not taking it to the world outside. The gospel is not just for us. Salvation is not just for us. It's for the whole world. Lord, help us. Um, Lord, I I, I feel... uh, I feel at the same time a sense of, of guilt because I keep my yap shut so much. And, and also I feel great hope because it doesn't just have to be some, uh, some uh, effort or energy that I just generate from within. If I will let the gospel grab my mind, it will motivate me. You by your spirit will empower me to take the gospel message far and wide across the street and around the world. And that's true for each of us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would work in us that way, that we would be amazed by the gospel, that we would be amazed that you would make yourself known to us and, and, and call us to be your children and that you offer that freely around the world, that we would be amazed by that and we would take it and run and tell people. Lord, I pray that you would do that and that we would see um, 
the, the fertile fields of our nation and our world uh, bear fruit of the gospel. Lord, I pray that many would come to know you because uh, your children are amazed by you and lift you up and, and ponder the gospel and wonder at the gospel and love to tell it to other people. We pray that you would do that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.